Well, thank you, Simon. It's a joy to be here and jump right in with these words from T.S. Eliot. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. These lines from T.S. Eliot, written while he was suffering through the trauma of the nightly firebombing of London, express Eliot's conviction that the present touches eternity. As such, these lines well introduce this evening's topic. The genesis of this topic was an observation made many years ago by my mentor, Father Serve Pinkers, and shared with me by one of Father Pinkers' former assistants, uh, my former colleague, Father Luke Tomas Sum. Specifically, Father Pinkers observed that St. Thomas avoids the term means when speaking of human action, preferring the pleonastic expression, those things that are toward the end. Why does he do this? Might it be because St. Thomas wishes to underline the intimate relationship existing between human action and the last end, the triune God? This is what I wish to briefly consider with you this evening. This feature of Thomas's thought especially deserves attention because of the way most translations of Thomas's Latin remove Thomas's awkward construction, replacing it as in English with the much simpler word means. An emblematic example of this occurs, Let's see, I just lost my place advancing the page there. Okay, an emblematic example of this occurs in question eight of the Prima Secundae of the Summa, where Lawrence uh, Shopcoat's, uh, where Lawrence Shopcoat, in his influential translation known to the world as the translation of the fathers of the English Dominican province, where uh, Father Shopcoat says he introduces the second article as follows. It would seem that volition is not of the means, but of the end only. For the philosopher says that volition is of the end, while choice is of the means. Thomas ultimately wants to say that the will as a power underlies both volition and choice. Of interest to us, however, is Father Shapka's use of the word means, which he employs here once to translate Aquinas, and wants to translate the Latin version of Aristotle. But if we look at the Latin, let's do that. We look at the Latin, we discover that the literal Latin word for means, media, does not appear at all. Videtur quod voluntas non sit eorumque sunt ad finum, sed tantum finis, dicit enim philosophus Quod voluntas est finis, alexio autem eorum quae sunt ad finem. The Latin literally says, oops, I didn't give you the literal. Uh, you've got it on the sheets there. Uh, the Latin literally says, it seems 
that will is not of those things that are to the end, but of the end only. For the philosopher in the third book of the ethics says that will is of the end, while election is of those things that are to the end. If we turn to Aristotle's Greek, now we can advance. If we turn to Aristotle's Greek, we find an analogous situation. Aristotle contrasts bulesis with uh, prohyresis affirming that bulesis, often translated as wish, uh, concerns the end, while prohyresis, normally choice or election, is about those things that are toward the end. Uh, and I've given you that here on these sheets. You know, yet bulesis is often of the end, whereas prohyresis is about what is toward the end. Um, all right, so the question then can shift uh, but one thing I want to underline as well is that, to be fair, Thomas does employ a geometrical analogy. Uh, he does employ this, and, it, and this analogy portrays human acts like the midpoints or middle spaces between two endpoints, specifically the starting point and the terminus or limit of the action. Uh, and it is here that Thomas employs the Latin term for media from which our English word means comes. Now, imagine a circle, because this is coming from the, the works, the Latin works in geometry. Uh, imagine a circle, and you want to traverse the circle in one way or another. You don't have to do it right across uh, the longest length, but you can come at it, uh, bisect the circle in almost any way. You have to enter the middle space of the circle to get from one limit of the circle to another limit of the circle. Uh, that's the idea of terminus, two termini, and then the middle points, the media in between the two termini. That's the kind of geographical, uh, the geometrical space that, that is presupposed in the Latin terminology. Uh, so uh, here is um, uh, a classic example. Uh, the, uh, and I can literally translate it here. In natural things, it is by the same power that a thing passes through the midpoints, media, and arrives at the terminus. But those things that are to the end are like the midpoints, media, through which one arrives at the end uh, as to a terminus. Therefore, if volition is of the end, it is also of those things that are to the end. Now, Thomas employs this analogy once again when he wishes to specify that volition of the end is uh, the act of intention. But this, uh, but this time he places the analogy in the singular. That to which that, is, that which is to the end relates to the end as a midpoint to a terminus. But it is one and the same movement that passes through the midpoint to the terminus in natural things, therefore also in voluntary things. The intention of the end is the same movement as the volition of that which is to the end. But, uh, so, Thomas recognizes that, absolutely speaking, there are two acts of the will, intention and choice. 
His point, however, is that the will's act of choice depends on and flows from the will's underlying act of intention, which act remains throughout the genesis of the human action. The important issue for us is that St. Thomas is St. Thomas's willingness to compare human acts with midpoints or media towards some terminus. If this is Aquinas' own practice, why object to translating his cumbersome those things that are to the end with the term means? Indeed, the analogy seems to make perfect sense when we recognize with Thomas that the, and the tradition that we are wayfarers, viatores in this life called to advance by human acts toward our ultimate goal of union with God in heaven. One way to respond to this question uh, is by noting the rarity of the analogy. Thomas only employs it three times in his entire corpus. In the two examples I have given you from the Summa Theologiae, and once in the De Veritate, and always to address the same issue, the relationship between this primal voluntas, which is intention, uh, and its relationship to choice. In contrast, in the Summa alone, Thomas refers to those things that are ad finem over a hundred times. And it's uh, the search engine I was using crashed when I tried to find out how many it's used throughout the entire corpus. Uh, many hundreds of times. Clearly, Thomas prefers to employ Aristotle's pleonastic formulation. But why? The reason becomes clearer, I believe, when we look at the shortcomings of the analogy with local motion that the use of the term means media introduces. To portray human acts like stepping stones or midpoints on a journey from point A to point B fails to convey the intimate relationship between the human act and its ultimate end, God. For example, if while traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, I pass through the dusty Central Valley community of Turk, I am indeed passing through the midpoint between these two great California cities. But what is the relationship between Turk and Los Angeles? Their relationship is absolutely accidental. By describing an act's relationship to its end as analogous to a midpoint on a journey, as a mere means, as the term uh, co is commonly understood in English, we, we risk losing sight of the inner dynamism that is at the source of human action. Not only of its relationship to its end, but also to its beginning. For Aquinas, God as creator is the first cause, the transcendent efficient cause, and the final cause of all of our actions. You can look at that at study question 44 of the Prima Pars, uh, both the first article and then the easy to remember fourth article response to the fourth objection. So first part, 4444. <laughs> So, God is that enveloping cause. St. Thomas alerts us to human action's uniqueness at the very, onset, the very outset of his treatment of human action in the Prima Secundae of the Summa, when he affirms that, quote, 
Now let's see, I think I've got that too. Man and other rational creatures attain to their end by knowing and loving God. The verb Thomas employs here is consequitur. Now, in a general sense, consecutor, our, our word consequence comes from that. It's what follows. But it has a much more specific term. Uh, I've translated it, consequitur here as attain. And uh, the attainment, when this verb is used, conveys a very specific type of attainment. Um, let me back here. Which literally means uh, to follow after. One meaning of which is to act according to original model or plan. To attain the model in action is to follow the model. Thomas knows exactly what he is doing here because we attain the end by perfecting the image of the end that is already from the beginning instilled in our nature. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. St. Thomas outlines this way of attainment in his treatment of the image of God in us. Since man is said to be the image of God by reason of his intellectual nature, he is most in the image of God according to that by which an intellectual nature can best imitate God. Now, intellectual nature imitates God chiefly in this, that God knows and loves himself. Hence, we can consider the image of God in man in three ways. First, inasmuch as man possesses a natural aptitude for knowing and loving God, and this aptitude consists in the very nature of the mind, which is common to all men. Secondly, inasmuch as man actually and habitually knows and loves God, though imperfectly. And this image consists in the conformity of grace. Thirdly, inasmuch as man knows and loves God perfectly. And this image consists in the likeness of glory. Too often we think of the image of God as a static thing, but this in Aquinas' understanding, the image is most perfectly in existence in us in the act of knowing and loving God. God created us in his triune image by endowing us with the spiritual powers of intellect and will. He perfects this image by granting us a participation of his divine life in the beatific vision, whereby we know and love God in the glory of heaven. That is our end our eschaton. It is in heaven that the act and the end are united. Thomas draws on Aristotelian physics to explain this. In natural motion, the end is twofold. An object's natural place is to the end uh, which finis cuius it moves. So I'll repeat that. In natural motion, the end is twofold. The, an object's natural place is the end to which, finis cuius, it moves. And there is the attainment of the end, finis quo, which consists in the object resting in that natural place. So there's the place 
Fire moves up, stone moves down. There's the place that is the natural terminus of uh, natural motion. But there's also the end in the sense of the object being in its end. So too, in the movement from grace to glory, God is the end toward which we move, finis cuius, and we attain our end, finis quo, in the act of knowing and loving him. The rest we attain in God is full and untiring activity. In this instance, our act is truly our end, because the act itself configures us to our end, imparting to us a participation in the intimacy of God's triune life. Now, at this point, one might be tempted to raise an objection. All of this is very beautiful, one might say, but what does it have to do with acts that are ad finem? How does the life of glory teach us about human action in this life? The short answer to this objection is that the life of grace offers the Christian a foretaste and an inchoate participation of heavenly beatitude. For Thomas, for St. Thomas, the Beatitudes offer us emblematic examples of acts that are so perfectly ad finem that they, are, that they already participate in the end. Thomas views the Beatitudes as describing perfect acts of infused virtue and especially perfect acts of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Spirit moves the saint to act. Thomas recognizes that the fathers were not in agreement concerning whether the rewards assigned to the Beatitudes pertain to this life or to our life in heaven. Some, such as Ambrose, held that they belong to eternal life, while others, such as Augustine, affirmed that they were attainable in this life, while others still, uh, such as Chrysostom, held that some pertain to eternal life and some to this life. Aquinas characteristically synthesizes all three views. He maintains that the happiness proper to each of the Beatitudes is fully attained only in heaven, in the perfection of our heavenly homeland, perfectio patriae. Aquinas recognizes, however, another type of perfection, the perfection of the way, perfectio viae. which is attainable in this life. The holy ones who attain this perfect perfection enjoy, even in this life, a certain imperfect and inchoate beginning of future happiness. Quondam incoationem imperfectum futuri beatitudinis. In other words, Aquinas describes the perfection of the way as participating in the, of the perfection of the end. Here is how Thomas explains it. Those things that are assigned as rewards may either be perfect happiness itself, and thus refer to the future life, or some beginning of happiness, aliqua incoatio beatitudinis, Incoatio literally comes from the idea of laying a foundation, 
such as is found in those who have attained perfection, in viris perfectis, in which case these rewards refer to the present life. Because when one begins to make progress in the acts of the virtues and the gifts, it can be hoped that he will arrive at both the perfection of the way and the perfection of the homeland. Et ad perfectionem viae, et ad perfectionem patriae. Patrie. This is not to deny the sufferings of this life, but, Aquinas, but in Aquinas' view, the holy, in their wisdom as lovers of contemplation, can experience joy even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of torture, this joy is found, as was the case, Thomas notes, with the martyred saint uh, Tiburtius, a Roman martyr, who, when he was walking barefoot on the burning coals, said, it seems to me that I walk on roses in the name of Jesus Christ. So he's being tortured to death, but he's experiencing it as a bed of roses. As an aside, uh, when Mother Teresa opened her novitiate in San Francisco, the sisters uh, got to know the needs of the community. And one of the helpers who witnessed this told me this story. He was a funny fellow. He's a recovering alcoholic who drove around town in a, a convertible Mustang, a wonderful car, and then he has the sisters with him. Anyway, he would, uh, the sisters would know about what was going on in the neighborhood, and they heard about a shut-in that no one had seen for several uh, days, actually, I think more than a week. So they knocked on his door, he weakly invited them in, and he was bedridden by this point, and the bed was full of excrement. And the, the driver who told me this story said the, the, the stench was overwhelming. But the moment the sisters started to take care of him, the room fell up, uh, filled up with the scent of roses. And, of course, they acted like nothing was happening, but the, the fellow, suddenly his face turned to joy and, and he made eye contact with our driver. The two of them definitely were surprised by this experience. So the way in which the perfect can experience something uh, of the joy of heaven, even in the midst of suffering. But it is not only the perfect who experience joy in action. St. Thomas recognizes that any act of Christian virtue, no matter how feeble and imperfect, if animated by charity, produces the joy, the, the joy that are the fruits of virtue and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The fruits are any virtuous deeds in which one rejoices. Thomas is referring here to the virtues as animated by charity, that, that divine love, that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Acts animated by charity produce joy because, as Thomas explains elsewhere, everyone takes joy in what he loves. Now, much more could be said here. Thomas was revolutionary in going beyond a limitation that Augustine never really was able to get beyond. Augustine's wonderful theology of charity, when you think about it, it's love for God as an absent good that he desires, which of course is present in the Psalms and it's part of monastic culture. Uh, but what Aquinas was able to discern is that that presentation of charity is actually a theology of hope 
as animated by charity. Hope, Aquinas explains, loves God as an absent good that we hope to obtain, that we, in the act of hoping to obtain through Christ's help, we hope to attain God in heaven. But charity loves God as a present good, as one with whom we are united. So it's a different uh, experience. In charity, the act is truly ad finem, because it participates in a union of uh, divine friendship in uh, the object that is loved. It is two loving together in the mystery of the Trinity. Thomas draws, on, uh, draws all these themes together in his commentary on chapter 15 of John's Gospel where we learn by means of the analogy of the vine and the branches that it is only in Christ that we can produce the fruit of good works and that it is only by remaining in him and in his love that his joy can be ours and our joy can be full, the fullness of which we attain only in heaven. Moreover, it is also where we see in what the fullness of this love consists. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But it is in his commentary on the preceding chapter, chapter 14, that St. Thomas probes the mystery of the way that is also the end. Commenting on the Lord's aff affirmation that I am the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas observes, since this way, via, is not separated from its destination, terminus, but united to it, he, Christ, adds, and the truth and the life. He is at once both the way and the destination, simul est via et terminus. He is the way as man and the destination as God. The English translation of this often is, is horrendous. The, the Latin is just exquisite. Although Jesus also reveals that he is the way to the Father, no one comes to the Father but by me, Aquinas explains that, quote, because the Father and the Son are one, this way leads also to himself. And so Christ says that he is the terminus of the way. Dicit Christus seesse terminum viae. Christ is life itself and truth itself. He contains within himself all that we could desire. Our knowledge our desire for knowledge of truth is fulfilled in him. He is truth itself. Our desire for eternal life is fulfilled in him. He is life itself and life eternal. Thus, being united to the destination, Christ referred to himself as the way because he is the destination containing in himself whatever can be desired, that is, existing truth and life. At the end of the day, Thomas recognizes that this journey to the triune God has more the character of growth than of local motion. So he will call us to grow in Christ by growing in knowledge and love of God. Christ must increase, 
crescere, in you. That is, you should grow in the knowledge and love of Christ because the more you are able to grasp him by knowledge and love, the more Christ increases, crescit in you. That's from chapter 3, where he's commenting on the Baptist's words. Thomas says, Thomas says to us, therefore, if you were to go, if you were to ask where to go, cling to Christ, for he is the truth which we desire to reach. My mouth will utter truth. If you ask where to remain, which of course is the great Johannine question, where do you remain, where do you dwell? Remain in Christ, because he is the life. He who finds me finds life and shall have salvation from the Lord. Therefore, cling to Christ if you wish to be secure, for you cannot get off the road because he is the way. And so those who hold on to him are not walking off the road, but are on the right road. I have taught you the way of wisdom. And so we can say with Eliot, in Christ, what we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Thank you.